to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you tonight from the Wally Baloo Auditorium on the beautiful Hoople campus, where the temperature is a balmy minus 8 degrees. Tonight we're talking about the discovery of a 6,600-year-old cache of olives that was found at an underwater site off the coast of Israel. Who was the first person to eat the hard, bitter fruit, and how did their descendants figure out how to process olives so they actually taste good? How did this simple little fruit go from a supplemental source of nutrition to an industrial crop and vital part of a well-balanced martini? Most memorable olive experience. And the reason I ask that is because many of us of a certain age and a certain background and girth um, grew up thinking that olives were these little squeaky black gasket-like things that came out of a can. And that's not, that's not the case. Um, Rachel? Um, I have two, and they're both really sort of stupid, but um, the first one was the first time I had Israeli olives in Israel, and um, that changed my view of olives. And then the second one was the first time I had Kalamata olives um, somewhere in the United States. <laughs> And, and how, that, old, how old were you when that happened? I was probably in my 20s, maybe yeah. 30s. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Um, and that changed my view of, of olives as well. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Professor Dessel? I can't, I can't really think of anything specific. I've always eaten olives. I've always liked olives. I mean, I've excavated a big, almost intact Iron Age olive press room, but I thought we'd get to that later. Well, I know, you're will, with your best material here. Exactly. <clears throat> I guess part, I guess my fascination with the pimento stuffing in the, in the 60s, those big yeah. green olives with the pimento stuffing and not really understanding what, what all that was. <laughs> yeah, the whole how they got the thing out, how exactly. they got the thing in. Exactly, right. Complex machinery or some sort of weird child labor with- <laughs> And also, also why? What did the pimento bring to the olive? What did it literally bring That's to the- That's interesting. It, it tastes good with the olives though. It it's a really good combination. I guess it's a visual diacritical thing. Right. Um, I wonder yeah. where the origination of that was. It's it's tactile as well, though. It's not just visual. I yeah, think. yeah, it is. Right, you got the contrasting mouthfeel of right. the slimy little pimento and the <laughs> and the slightly textured firm olive. Yeah, right. You guys have to have MA students delve into this. Yeah, have a whole seminar on <laughs> on on this. Well, I have two. Uh, you know, one of them is actually related. 
when I when I first went to Greece to work in 1981, and I was introduced to the whole gamut, the panoply, the plethora of olives that just was pretty was pretty mind blowing. That would appear on your table at every single meal, morning, noon, and night. And then the other thing that stands out is um, there's a restaurant in Grand Central Station called Cipriani that makes, I think, some of the best vodka martinis I've ever had with olives the size of, I don't know, tennis balls and, and the olive and the ice, ice cold martini, the, the two, there could not be two more contrasting textures, flavors, concepts, and very memorable. But I don't think that our middle calcolithic ancestors um, were thinking in quite those terms, or, or were they? I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, this, this is one of the fascinating things I like about sort of culinary archeology span or whatever you want to call it, is where did they get the crazy idea, you know? That you could eat the stuff? Yeah, that you could eat yeah. the stuff. Or even more <coughs> importantly, that you had to do something to it first to eat it. Like, I, okay, there's this I'm little- thinking about that. There's this little ovoid thing and you bite into it and it's horrible. There's yeah. just, there's no give. It doesn't taste good. They were probably smaller than today's domesticated oh, yeah. olives. And so you, it, I, I'm lazy. I would have thrown it out and said, okay, I got to find a new plant. <laughs> but, but there, somebody took a, took a longer, you know, took a longer view and said, what can I do to this? And they started experimenting. They put it in fresh water. They put it in salt water. They put it in rock salt. And they did all of these things. And then ultimately, they, it ended up in Grand Central Station to <laughs> demarcate one of the most sublime experiences that... Uh, that one can have. I think it was probably like a lucky accident. That's what I figure that, you know, you have these olive trees, the olives are falling everywhere. Maybe it falls into a, a bucket bottle. of salt water or I, I don't bucket know. Of, a bucket of salt water? Well, what, what else would they have had? Um, it fell into a puddle and it, it sat, and sat there. And then some kid, you know, some stupid kid picked it up and it like wasn't as but, hard as a rock. But, but fresh water isn't going to do anything to yeah. it. The fresh water is going to make it less bitter. Oh. But it has to sit there for weeks and weeks. Yeah. And so that brings me to my other, my other olive story. Yeah. That in, in Tucson, there, were, there are zillions of olive trees that were planted back at the beginning of the 20th century. Mostly they end up on median strips and highways now. Mm -hmm. and, um, and my friends, um, Louise and Dunbar, used to go and collect these things. And then they'd put them in the, in the mesh bags, like, you know, with sock bags or something. And they'd hang it in their toilet tank. And so every time you flushed, it would rinse the olives with and replace the fresh water. I thought that was very clever, particularly, you know, in a, it's in a, clever. In a harsh environment like Tucson. It's, it's clever, but I don't know. It wasn't a great image. Well, did they taste? Did they taste like anything without the salt water? Well, no. Then you have to cure them. Oh, so they did that first. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
And I guess, I guess if you're like looking for sources of nutrition and fat and, you know, you, you realize that the olive is a good source of nutrition, so you eat it even if it doesn't taste good? Well, I don't know. See, that's another very interesting question. I think that in certain cases, like animals, there's a recognition that eating as much of this dead animal tissue is, uh, is good, that that's just flat out good. It's going to fill you up. It's going to sustain you. The fat tastes good, all good. But these other kinds of things, like especially olives, how could they recognize anything scientifically advantageous about the olive? Like grains, cereal grains, pulses, those kinds of things. I mean, I think there was a, the level, the, the quantity was so big that they couldn't reject it as a food source. It was just so easy and so much and all of this kind of stuff. But these, these, these kind of prestige goods, like an olive, I don't know, could, at that point they couldn't recognize, oh, this is fatty, that's good. Right. They can only go that this is available, it's easy to procure, and it's tasting better and better every time we, you know, every time we fiddle around with it. Right. I mean, well, we, should, we should probably point out here for our listener that, <laughs> that what, what we're talking about is, is the publication of a very, very interesting discovery from the so-called middle Calcolithic period, the mid seventh millennium before present of a site that's now offshore uh, off the coast of Israel, in which was found massives of, of olive pits that had apparently been left there sometime, you know, 6,000 minus-ish, 5,000 to 6,000, that were being stored and cured next to the, next to the shore. And at another site nearby, there's remain, and, and, and these were being cured for eating. Right. As opposed to another site nearby where the olives and the pits had been smashed to remove the oil. And right. this, this pushes back the horizon of using then wild olives by a couple thousand years. And though, the, though here I'm going to interrupt and bring please. up my, my favorite site of all time. <laughs> Brought to you by the Ohalo Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> Ohalo too, on the shores of the, of the Kinneret, where 20,000 BCE, so 22,000 BP, they had evidence of wild olive pits. So there was some use of wild olives there. Now, Ohalo is a, is a little, it's, it's a wonderful site. It has all this evidence for a very, very broad spectrum of, of plant remains. But of course, we don't have any connective tissue really between the Epipaleolithic and really the, 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 that part of the Epipaleolithic and the Natufian, and then the Natufian to this middle Calcolithic for all of these exotic kinds of plants. We have plenty of connective tissue for pulses and cereals. So we don't have it for these, you know, for these fancy plants. And so that's, a, that's kind of an interesting conundrum, which we can pick up again in, in sort of more in the Bronze Age. But um, all I, all I, I think it's important to know that the 20,000 BC, they knew about olives. Right. 
right? And, and, and there's just no evidence between between then and now this new discovery, which right. is seventh millennium. So so that's right. A big gap. So is is it two cases of independent invention that are unrelated, or are we just missing missing the connective tissue? I mean, there's a, did people not like them enough? Did they not think they're delicious enough to remember them for many thousands of years? Um, well, maybe they weren't really making them. Maybe your ohalo olives, as much as you like the site, just weren't very tasty. Right, and that could be. Uh, exactly. Maybe because they were trying to cure them in fresh water. There you go. They, didn't, they never really cracked the olive case, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> nice. So I just wanted to, to make sure that we understand that this isn't the earliest. Right. Even right. though there is a lot of interest. The, uh, this is a very, this discovery, the one from the, the middle calcolithic is very provocative because not only do we have olives, but we have two methods of, uh, of, of processing. Of processing, thank you. Right. And we have architecture associated with it. Right. We're actually right. devoting specialized architecture, specialized little little bins for for the olive um, for the olives. Yeah. So that adds to this notion of specialization, and you know, specialization is one of those things where. You can either make a big deal about it and, and say, oh, all of this stuff that we thought didn't happen until the EB1, let's say, is now, go we can push it back now several thousand years. Or you can say, well, it wasn't so specialized other than the fact that, you know, they could throw together these little, little stone bins on the shore of the, on the Mediterranean shore and, and thus, you know, process these olives. So it's an interesting way to assess how you can, what you think about these technological innovations. Yeah, that's true, that's true. And the other thing that, that struck me um, about the find is, is so on the one hand, you have the site where they're doing the crushing to make the oil. On the other hand, you have the site where they're using the seawater to brine the olives. So that's really interesting. So in this case, in the seventh millennium, they're actually interested in the flavor and they're, right. they're getting the brining. But then there's also the, the moment in time part of this, like the only reason we are able to find these olives that were sitting there getting brined is because nobody came along to collect them. So they were kind of abandoned there. Um, maybe, orphan olives. What? Oh, orphan olives. Yeah, yeah. Little, little um, orphan olive. You know, this is maybe when, when you know, the, the town was destroyed by a comet or, or a, a dinosaur came and stomped on it or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But, um, but, but, you know, you don't want to waste all these olives. So they didn't leave them in there indefinitely. You know, we got lucky that somebody forgot about their grinding process and had a flea for safety. Um, yeah. Right. And, and that speaks to another issue is, is that the olives are not local. They actually have to procure them. I don't know how many kilometers away, uh, even though it's an uphill climb, it's not probably that far, but, um, but there's a whole system. They have to, they, they procure the olives from the sort of, from the, from the Mount Carmel area, they bring them down to the coast, they process them and then right, exactly. Something happened and <laughs> they left them there. Right. For, for us to find. Right, they left them there for, for thousands of years until a couple guys in Speedos um, <laughs> were, were swimming around and you know, a couple meters below the, 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 the water and said, holy crap, there's thousands of olive pits here. What's, what's going on? Right. And it also speaks to a very different um, 
physical environment in the Calcolithic. Right. And here, my, my, one of my pet peeves is that I think uh, that during the Calcolithic and the um, early Bronze Age, that much of the Southern Levant looked like Vermont in terms, <laughs> in terms of its, the extent of its forestation. Right. Well, but wasn't it heavily deforested in the Neolithic period when they're producing all that lime plaster? I think that's very localized around, particularly around the mega sites. In the... Right. So particularly in, well, I thought Lebanon was pretty much deforested in order to produce all the lime plaster for, for Syria. Well, this is, uh, this is a question. I mean, you look at the, at the, pollen, at the pollen diagrams and you can see all of pollen going up during the Calcolithic and EB and the coniferous pollen going down and the changes in the ratios, but the actual physical extent right. of, of these so-called forests is, is very hard to ascertain. You have ranges that you can reconstruct on the basis of where the samples are from. I choose to think that it looked a lot like Vermont. Okay. Um, but, but you're not saying that there was ever a time when olive trees were scarce. You're just saying that there, no. yeah, that, that there could have been a whole lot of them. <clears throat> I think there were, I think there were plenty of them. And these are in the Calcolithic period. Um, certainly they're, they're wild. Although at the end of the Calcolithic, there's a bit of a question about whether they're domesticated or not, just based on the size of the right. pits. Mm -hmm. But um and that also speaks to the idea of, well, you know, if you're going to cultivate an olive tree, you're staying around to do it. <laughs> right. That's true. That's not something that happens in one or two years. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and so actually, it's, it's interesting because maybe the deforestation of the conifers allowed for the sort of expansion of other kinds of, of trees like olive. Right. Well, you, you, you have to basically substitute one for right. one thing with, with another thing. Right. And, and the use of plaster is a Neolithic thing, not a Calcolithic thing. So that would have set the table, as it were, for, um, for large growth olive orchards, olive, whatever they're called, olive orchards. Orchards? Olive orchards. orchards. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the other, the other thing, um, and I'm not speaking to the lime, I'm just speaking to the olive trees, is um, that they can live a really long time. They can live hundreds of years. That's so true. if you are either cultivating them in a tree farm, or if you're just using trees that you found in one region, you're using the same ones generation after generation. Um, if this is an industry that's important to you. And, uh, but I don't think that if, if, even if you have a very, very old olive tree that it, it somehow starts out as wild and then becomes domesticated. No, I think, right. I think there's a lot of, you know, cult. This, you have to, you have this to be like, and, and planting and grafting and all exactly. that. Exactly. Right. And, right. and that's something we need to think a lot more about is this shift or is the gestation period of cultivating wild types for long periods of time until the actual process of domestication hits home. Yeah. So that also speaks to the fact that, that um, they were messing around for a you know, for long time. Yeah. Hundreds yeah. Of years with these wild types right. until finally um, are able to domesticate it in some way. So, so something else I learned um, just by Googling the other day is, and I probably sh I should have known this, is that when you get a green olive, 
you're getting an olive that isn't ripe. And if you leave it on the tree for a longer period, then it turns darker. So um, there's stages in the harvesting as well on an annual basis. And um, now I understand the tubs of mixed olives that are <laughs> in fairway much more clearly than I did before. Right. So what does everybody think about the use of olive oil? What were they using olive oil for? Or is it you being- I can tell you what I use olive oil for. <laughs> right. Well, are we back to soap and perfume? <laughs> I guess we are getting close to Full circle. Right. right. But, but in the middle calcolithic, that's, that's a pretty early point in time for them to be producing unguents and perfumes and soaps. Or was it just being used for uh, a light, uh, fuel for light source? Fuel, fuel for light. And what other oils were out there as, as possible alternatives? Like I like to cook with olive oil, even though it has its own distinctive flavor. Um, and I will do most of my frying in olive oil when I bother to cook at all. But, um, but uh, you know, certain things you don't want that olive oil-y taste. Well, you should through. ask that and because the last two days I have become obsessed completely <laughs> with um, calcolithic textiles. <laughs> oh, good. You know, if you've seen me with this sort of glazed look, it's because I've been thinking about that. And, and the thing is that all the textile evidence is just flax. It's, there's no, it's just linen, which okay. comes from flax and you can also make linseed oil. I was about to say. Right. right. And there's no wool. And, and I find that shocking at, yeah, at that, many levels, but there you are. But that can't, firstly, it takes, it takes so much water to grow flax. Mm. It's a very inefficient kind of crop. Hey, you know, I don't, I don't speak <laughs> to the sustainability issue. I, no, well, it's, it's, it's there. It's, it's the agri-system of collecting and storing and managing large amounts of water. And secondly, they have to be wearing wool. Come on. They have to be wearing wool. I agree. Just yeah, because I mean, not finding evidence doesn't mean they didn't have it. All, all the evidence of all the calcolithic textiles is, is um, linen. But what about the evidence for... Um, herd management of sheep and goat. And yeah. that's the interesting thing because you have millions of fan scrapers in the Calcolithic and into the EB, which are used for butchering animals. So it's improbable that they're, that they're just <laughs> throwing away all this, all this hair, all this hide. No, we're going right. to stay for the lamb chops. But, um, but there's no, there's no, preserved evidence of that. So there could be different tiers of, of, uh, of. Yeah, it could, also be, it could also be just a, a, the pattern of where we're getting textile remains. If they're all from sort of, you know. Well, they're all from, they're all from caves in the Judean desert. Right. So that's a very selective right. environment in the first yeah. place. Exactly. Right. And, and not everybody excavates today the way they excavated in the past. So you could be missing a lot of wool from earlier excavations that just wasn't recognized by archaeologists or collected by archaeologists. Um, well, I don't know. They, they've got all that purple dyed <coughs> stuff at, at Temna now, but it's now really it's, yeah. preserved at the arid zone sites. Right. Whether you, whether you like it or not, unless you can somehow use your, you know, tricorders. Um, and 
and let's face it, linen is what you're going to want to wear in 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 that kind of climate. That's true. But you know, once you go into the once you go into the Mediterranean Highlands, you know, g- give me give me a nice woolen jerk any day. Right, right. You get nippy. Well, let's get back to oil more specifically. So, in other words, there would have been linseed oil around. Right. And that was that was the whole source of this. Right. Right. And I don't know what, I've never tried to burn linseed oil, so I don't know if it burns cleanly or not so cleanly. Was it a good source of fuel or not? I've only used it to thin paint, so I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Um, we encourage our listener to, to write in. <laughs> if we had a chat feature, they could, he or she could do that right now. Right. We don't really have any, any evidence for oil production, right? Well, the other, the other, except, early... for the, except for this site. Yeah, except for this, right, right, right. right. That's right. what I was thinking. Yeah, no, but we have plenty of evidence. I don't know if we want to jump ahead now to to Bronze and Iron Ages, but we have plenty of evidence for olive oil production in the Iron Age. Right. I mean, the Iron Age is the is the zenith of olive oil production and and sets the Mediterranean on a on a course that it that it continues on till today. Right. right. A very healthy, heart healthy course. <laughs> right. We right. should add uh, for our for our sponsor, the American <laughs> Heart Healthy Association. But interestingly, you know, we've got we've got all this evidence for uh, in in the EB, just to pitch pitch for the EB. They're exporting. Right. They seem to be exporting wine and oil from the Southern Levant to Egypt. But um, and we assume that it's being you know made out in the in the boondocks somewhere. Right. And that seems but, to be the case. But then in the in the middle bronze and the late bronze, Bupkis. Well, not Bupkis exactly. The middle bronze, I think we need to come back to. But the at Ulubarun, they have lots of evidence for both olives and olive oil. Okay. But where's it coming from? Well, I don't I don't really, I mean, ultimately, I don't really think it matters. It's coming from, you know, probably the Levant. I mean, much of the Ulubarun stuff is coming from the Levant. Okay. And I think all of that Terebinth, you know, material. That's that, coming from way, way beyond. No, I think that's coming from the Levant also. Is it? I think so. Um, quite a bit of the plant material comes from the Levant. So, so there's that L- uh, LB evidence. Right. And I think, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say what's missing from the LB and especially the MB, which honestly, the MB, the MB is more mysterioso than less to me every day, is the processing. We don't get, we have big urban sites in the MB and LB, and a lot of times continuity in urban sites. And it's a big chunk of any given tell, the MB, LB, you know, urban site. And we don't have big industrial level olive processing plants at these sites like we do in the Iron Age. Right. And right. that to me, that to me is a very curious thing. And I, and again, especially for the Middle Bronze Age, because these Middle Bronze Age cities are, are big and robust and they begin this reurbanization of the Southern Levant and there's lots of continuity for hundreds of years at these urban sites. And we don't get the kind of industrial areas that you see later. Right. And it can't be an, an accident of excavation because 
enough MB and LB of any given site has been excavated to give us some sense yeah. of if there's an industrial quarter, which there must have been, because there had to be important economic drivers for these for this urban period. Right. So, so, so sorry. No. So here's the hypothesis that we can't that we can't prove, and you know, it's basically uh, trends or styles, the archaeology of trends. We'll never be able to prove this kind of thing, but but you know. For the couple of hundred years, the many hundreds of years of the Middle Bronze Age, maybe this just is not a trend. People were not using olive oil because maybe they were using linseed oil. I don't know. Um, maybe they weren't frying. Maybe they had a different source for fuel. They well, although lamps always require oil, right. um, and lamps and lamps really take off in the in right. the second millennium. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. They're crazy about they're crazy about light. But maybe <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't done on an industrial scale. They were probably using whale oil or something. That's well, that's the thing. So, I mean, in in Syria, you can, we have where we have you know lots of texts, yeah, Mari and earlier stuff from Ebla. We know that there are vast herds of fat-tailed sheep, and that these fat-tailed sheep are being bred in part because they have this big dense concentration of oil that at some point in at the, at near death. They can, you know, extract, they can, they can take out this, you know, kill the animal and get all this oil. So that's an interesting question. Is, is animal oil or really, you know, fat, animal fat being used in the Middle Bronze Age? And then there's a shift in the Late Bronze Age where we again pick up some evidence. Or is the prominent oil being used for cooking and anything else, fat, animal fat, and it's only in these very specialized categories of perfumes and unguents that mm -hmm. olive oil is being used and thus in sort of somewhat smaller quantities. Right. And, and I think part of this also has to do with the, the labor involved. Like is an olive oil, well, today it's an expensive oil, um, but wasn't it always a luxury oil because it burns cleanly um, and well, I think it, it it depends on the on the the scale of the exploitation that you're that you're trying to uh, generate. At, uh, and I don't think it is actually. I mean, now it's more expensive than than cheaper oils like canola and things like that. But it's not a more expensive oil compared to all the you know nut oils. They're really expensive. Okay. Okay. And so I, I think, and also remember that, you know, olive oil is ubiquitous in the Mediterranean until the present. Right. Um, but they all produced it at a local level for themselves. So that kind of fits the whole scale of the economy. Right. It's just, you know, I have my grove of olive trees and it's harvesting time and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make some oil and I'm going to use that oil all year round until the next harvest. Right. Yeah. So it, it speaks... It speaks to um, the the level of sedentarization, territoriality, right. concepts of ownership of of land, of uh, intergenerational transmission of wealth, things like that. And all, obviously, these kinds of things started in the calcolithic ish, maybe certainly in the in the EB, but probably. But now I think we can push it back a little bit. <clears throat> but in the in the MB, where you have at least much more evidence for a highly, highly 
relatively stratified kind of urban society where there's at least a couple of kings and kinglets who are on the international scene. And there's a, a, a more hierarchical organization of, of space. The idea that, that um, wealth and fat would be um, generated by mobile resources like, uh, like sheep is actually quite appealing in a way. It's not the steppes of the Euphrates where you can have billions of sheep wandering <laughs> around. Or even New Zealand. Hundreds of millions. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, <clears throat> but the, this idea that uh, and it's, a different, it's a different kind of wealth and it's a different cycle of wealth. And yeah, if they have fat tails, we're going to cook with them and light our lamps with them also and the relative importance of olives de declines in the energy economy right um, but it might increase in the prestige economy so right. here i'm thinking of comparing it to you know the mayan world where you have just incredible biodiversity and the biodiversity is both horizontal and vertical and you have lots and lots of little micro environments which are being exploited on all different levels of scale because of the prestige of this kind of, this kind of pepper versus that kind of pepper. I think there's something on the order of 200 kinds of pepper you know, available in, in Mayan society and parrot feathers and this kind of thing and that kind of thing. And so there's this whole you know, kind of economy and you know, the use of trade for you know, social complexity and all of that because of all these prestige items. Right. But, but maybe now we need to think a little bit more like that with olives. So in the Middle Bronze and Late Bronze Age, maybe it's more of a prestige item. And then in the Iron Age, especially in the Iron Age too, yeah. it just becomes- An industrial product. An industrial product. But then we have to say, what happened to the sheep? And maybe that's related to the environment because there, the, the area where we get the best evidence in the iron two for the industrialization is really right on that 250 millimeter isohyate, right? You know, Mikne exploiting olive trees in the Shafela. This is a very fragile, delicate environment that clearly they couldn't raise, you know, billions of sheep. Mm. So that's another, the whole economy and where these things fit into the economy is, is a, I think an important part of the equation. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting point. And it also made me think of by the iron too, when this is a huge industry, um, you know, it's very hard to pin down archeologically where farmland is and where orchards are. But, um, you know, if Mikna, for instance, is producing these vast quantities of oil in the seventh century, where are their trees? They're gotta be in the vicinity. Well, presumably in, in the, in the Shvela, you know, just to the east. Just to the east. So, but right. there's a regular system of going and gathering and bringing right. back. And and it's a sort of uh, international system because you're crossing some kind of, you know, ethno-political right. border. So right. you know, these Iron Age two Philistine sites, in which the only thing Philistine about them is their own self-identity, because the everything looks by and large by the eighth and seventh century it all is sort of Judean at one right. kind of functioning level. Um, but they're going into the hill country, you know, right. just, just to the west, uh, just to the east of, of, of Hesse, where you work, you know. 
they're just climbing those hills and and getting the olive oil out of the getting the olives out of the southern part of the central highlands but right. it's also part of an imperial economy right yeah we yeah. should talk about and, that and there's a glo- there's a, a world system you might <laughs> say there is a world system and and creating an economy of that scale means exporting to the west to the north every every which way in vast quantities that wasn't wasn't possible in 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 other periods when it was a prestige item that was going or when it was a a kind of local exchange um staple within let's say the early bronze age or um or when it was just a kind of basic food stuff in the in the good old calcolithic period it's, it really right. takes it takes an empire to right. to bring the industry into its fullest uh fullest realization and they're just cranking it out by the by the barrel full right well and you wonder what I could... i'm sorry oh no, you go ahead no i forget <laughs> <laughs> and you wonder what kind of how the neo-assyrians facilitated all of this did they did they literally sit down and say okay potty we're gonna make you know ekron the the you know we're, we're gonna give you the the uh, the rights to all you know olive oil production in the southern part of the southern Levant, right. um, or did that arise out of the entrepreneurial activity of Mikne itself or Ekron itself, then making an appeal to the Assyrians? So is it top down or or bottom up? Right, supply right. side or demand side. Right. I remember what I was going to say. It was the same thing, except I just wanted to clarify what we're talking about that that our olive oil production site of Ekron is within Philistia, the border they're crossing would be into Judah. But by the seventh century, it's the Assyrians who now we've mentioned by name, who are the empire who is facilitating all this because Assyria has conquered pretty much everything except Judah and they came pretty darn close to, to getting Judah too. But it is in this environment when this production um, ramps up. Um, right. so, so also who are they selling to? They're selling, they're buying, they're, they're procuring their olives internationally and then they're, or across, across borders and they're selling also across borders. One would assume unless, unless it's all um, being redistributed by the overlords. Well, the empire has that. Your sound is a little- Yeah, something went wrong with your sound. I'll, I'll sit closer. That's better. Um, yeah, well, the, the, the imperial economics of, of the empire are, are very interesting. And, you know, they had, they had vast needs and vast appetites for, for labor, for materials. Although, um, you know, they, they, they were more on the, they emphasized the imports rather than the exports um, at a certain point. And, but that doesn't, you know, this is all very kind of uh, familiar you know, almost contemporary economic level exploitation to me. I'm, I'm, I like to, I like to think of our simple calcolithic friends who are, who are saying to each other, no, you eat, you eat this hard, dry, tasteless, rather bitter <laughs> fruit. Uh, no, you do it. I'm not going to. And, right. and, and, and meanwhile, the, meanwhile, their calcolithic friend right down the coast is cracking open an oyster and, and slurping that up um, <laughs> as part of their, you know, as part of their broad spectrum. 
So it's uh, yeah. There's yeah. a it's lot. A, of it's the period of 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 of, of experimentation. Right. Exactly. That yeah. that that interests me. By the time they, I don't know. It, it's it's my old problem that you know after two thousand everything seems very contemporary to me. Oh well. Yeah. Um, so wait, I have a, I have a different question. I'm very interested in the material culture of these olive oil press uh, industrial areas, which JP, you've actually excavated. I've actually excavated one. Yeah. So um, what strikes me is um, I want to hear what it's like. What what. How did it come it, out of the earth that it was? What was it really like? What was it really like excavating an olive oil press? <laughs> well, you know, like everything on a dig, it um, it was uh, it got it, it. There was a lot of attention being given by the directors, and thus, you know, Cy Gittin and Trudy Dotan were spending a lot of time around me. Right. Which, you know, got a little, you know, it was. That's was very lot, nice. There was a lot of oversight. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, it was very exciting and it was a lot of fun and it was certainly very interesting. And uh, it was quite extraordinary. The most extraordinary thing was that the, that the entire room was oriented to the cardinal directions, which meant that all the walls were in the box. <laughs> and that made for a very easy, you know, very easy uh, <laughs> egress. Right. So, so one thing that struck me when I've looked at the Meekna Ekron um, reconstructions is everything seems like really close together. Like you've got your vat in the middle and you've got your, your presses where you put your baskets right on the side. It's like, if I were involved in this industry, I feel like I wouldn't have elbow room to really do the work. That's um, a good point. You're right. It was yeah. very close. Yeah, and when you look at some of the Roman period ones, it's like all spread out over a much larger room. You've got your donkey with your circular <laughs> thing doing the crushing, and then you've got the 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 um, the vats to squeeze over on the side, and it's a whole different kind of a setup. So I'm just really bothered by the close proximity of everything, and especially how many people are in a place uh, in a workshop in at the same time. It, 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 you're right about all of that. And there were over 110 pressing installations. So there were a lot of people involved and they were really kind of jammed in there. Yeah. But, you know, space was at a premium. Obviously they, they really wanted this, all of the processing very close to the entrance exit of the city so that they could get all this, get all these large jars filled with olive oil in and, in and out very quickly. Right. Um, and as a result, they made them, the processing area is very small. You're right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just an interesting, it's just an interesting point because there's a lot of activity going on in small spaces with a lot of people. Well, they were very small people, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it's not like you had a whole city full of Wilt Chamberlain sized individuals making this stuff. Where'd they make all the, all the, the pottery though? Yeah, ever figure that out? Because there, there's zillions of them. Yeah, there's a lot of pottery. I mean, there are there are a lot. There's just a lot, a ton. But I don't think that. I mean, they, there's just a lot of pottery being produced in general. So wherever these, too damn much. <laughs> too exactly. Yeah, it probably was. You know, 
if if ethnography's any hint, it was probably, you know, outside of the city and you know, in manufactories in some kind of hinterland. Well, but you have a you have an imperial scale uh, production facility for the for the oil. So there's got to be a, a commensurate scale ceramic production facility or supply chain somewhere. <laughs> um, no, but that's just sort of a yeah. No, it's it's definitely a, a part of it. But clearly the 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 space allotted to the oil was prominent enough to be in in the city. Right. 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 And then the other question, and again, there are texts from later periods about this, but like. Um, you know, you, you press oil, and you, get, um, you get the good oil, and then you get the less good oil, and then you get the dregs of the oil. So, um, you know, I, I was about to say E-V-O-O. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, in terms of what happens next, or were they put in different shape pieces, vessels, or were they just stored separately? Like, you know, you got to label your olive oil. Well, you know, olive oil is one of the most corrupt industries currently uh, on planet Earth, right? So there's all of these scandals constantly about the quality and the nomenclature being used for olive oil coming out of the Mediterranean. And what Americans don't realize is that a lot of olive oil that we consume is actually rancid, but you can't really taste the difference and we don't really know. I had no idea. Oh yes, it's a huge, hugely scandal. Right. And people die all the time in the, in the Mediterranean from dr using contaminated olive oil. And oh. right, mafia is is huge into that business. And exactly, okay. I didn't know right. this. All the olive oil tastes very good to me. Well, right, and you you know you are probably buying well regulated olive oil. I mean, right. if you want to buy good olive oil in the United States, you need to buy California olive oil that is, you know, sort of stamped by the state because that's very, very high quality and the quality control over it is extraordinarily good. But olive oil from the Mediterranean in general, if you don't really trust your purveyor, can be of any different quality. And I suspect the same kind of stuff was going on in antiquity because all of the Mikne jars are you know pretty much identical, and they're very close to the jars from uh, Timna. What's Avi, uh, Ami's site? Uh, God, I can't remember the name. Helbatash. Um, right. They have a very similar style jar of the same period. So clearly, that a lot of this stuff is being put into these store, all very similar storage jars, and I it one has no idea if they're making the separation. Right. Um, well, it's just fun to think about. Yeah. That, you know, we can't because we do all this stuff in modern times with our olive oil. There's no reason to think that they weren't, you know, it's so easy to press the good stuff out first and then it gets harder and harder. And or or, you know, is there too much um, <coughs> too much uh, particles in from the pits left in in some I don't know. But, but there again, we return back to empire, which mm -hmm. certainly has a very strong you know, mafioso flavor to it, especially the Neo-Assyrians. So mm -hmm. the Neo-Assyrians were probably just interested in the taxes collected from the industry or payoffs being made to the government by these local production centers. So they probably didn't 
care about the quality so much. And the production centers probably didn't care about the quality so much. Whereas in the late Bronze Age, where we have texts that tell us a lot of the you know, perfumes and unguents are olive oil based. Well, we know that those are you know, prestige items and they probably paid very careful attention to the quality of the olive oil. Right. But again, this is all just you know, speculation. So it, it, it would be interesting. And this is of course, you know, part of the whole rub between archeology span and, and text is that the degree of resolution that we get in archeology span forces us to ask different kinds of questions and we lack the specificity that you know, sometimes text can provide us. Of course, now we're again rounding the corner of science and now you know, science is able to do residue studies that can tell us, oh, you know, there's, this is for terebinth oil and this is for olive oil and this is right. olive oil that's perfumed and this is olive oil that's, you know. Right, so and this is olive oil that's been adulterated. This is <laughs> olive oil that's been cut with uh, linseed oil or right, exactly. seed oil or something. And this is, yeah. And right. so. Well, that would all be very interesting, um, but, but that's for another day. Right. I mean, it is interesting, always interesting in terms of the Southern Levant that we don't have the kind of text, we don't have the kind of reportage or even interest apparently in reporting the degree of you know, economic specificity that we find from the Northern Levant, mm. that we find from the Mycenaean world. That in we any just, period. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any time until right. the, the present. Right. And, and that's some kind, of, some kind of indication of the scale and the level of complexity of, of these. The mental, they had a mental block. Yeah. They weren't going to be pinned down about how much and when, and what it was made of. As, or, as or, we're, or we're just missing something. There's the argument that they're writing on something perishable, which you're not buying, clearly. No. Uh, Certainly not in the middle and late Bronze Age because they're part of the scribal world of Syro-Mesopotamia and right. we have texts. We have cuneiform tablets. Right. They right. could do it if they wanted to. They just right. didn't well, want to. They but could do it that way if they wanted to. Maybe the rest of the time they were doing it the way they wanted to, which was, you know. The only time they did anything like it was <clears throat> in the Iron Age when they adopted for, you know, a brief period, these this weird convention of stamping um, jar handles. Right. And they did it in a, an even more kind of attenuated way in the, in the early Bronze Age when they would do, you know, weird pot marks on, on whole, uh, whole mouth jars and, right. and maybe a few stamp seals from. Exactly. And, and, and the, that corpus is, is tiny. It's a few hundred at the most. Right. And it's, it's clearly derivative in that they, they, know, they know that there are these conventions being used elsewhere and they right. appropriate them and use them, but they, they're not really, really, you know, they're not dedicated to it. And they just sort of do it very sporadically and very unsystematically. And right, in the middle of Bronze Age, um, a king could say, okay, read to me that Gilgamesh tablet that, right. tribe that, that you brought from Mari. But um, how many jars of whatever did we produce last week? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't write it down. Did you write I, it down? I don't know about that. I think they're either they're either keeping the records very clearly in their heads. You know, they're doing it through some sort of oral memorization, or they're doing it in some form that we haven't no, figured out no, yet. Because I mean, what, it, 
even in the Neolithic, they're they're collecting tokens, and they're you know they have bags of of uh, of broken of of broken and of uh, you know bullae, but they don't. You need to find evidence of a lot of slate chalkboards. Chalkboards that they're using and erasing. Right. No, I think it's a really interesting thing. This whole lack of interest in financial records, economic records. And I don't think it's, I honestly don't think that they're using some kind of material that we've lost track of. Okay, I'll, I'll be alone in that theory. In the, in the, there, there are enough cuneiform tablets right. uh, from, the, from the Southern Levant. <clears throat> that, yeah, there are a couple of lists. There's yeah, a there couple are. of ABCeries too. Well, later well, on, and, and a, different. but like, let take even juridical tablets, which make up a huge corpus in the Syro-Mesopotamian world, um, and lists of um, lists of villages under the control of the major site. We don't have any of that either. We have, we have much none. less, much less lists of. We we sent out this number of shovels and we got right. this number of shovels back. Right. You know that was the or three level of of specificity. Yeah. Right. Well, right. And that of course Mich is at the Michigans. Right. That's an extreme. But just we don't even have lists of you know from Hatzor. These are the villages we control. This is you know you can't have such. This is why I stick to my guns. It's, 100, it's 150 years of digging the. I know. Up. I know. Look, right. it's a problem. I recognize it's a problem. They the have to be recording. Table. You can't have a sophisticated administrative system, which they clearly did. Look at the Middle Bronze Age cities, just the size and scope and the specialization. Obviously, they were they had some system. We're just missing something. I mean, I don't know how to teach this either. When I come across uh, up to the issue of writing the Levant, I never know how to teach it. So I throw all these options out there, but um, I've never been satisfied. Um, That's the theme song of the Southern Levant. I can't get no satisfaction. Right. <laughs> you can't always get what you want. Right. There you go. All right. Um, well, we've, got well we've, come a we've come a long way from, uh, from <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the capitalistic. We've managed to return to our pet peeves. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the recitation of the grievances. <laughs> we're, not, we're nothing if not predictable. Right. Well. <laughs> All righty. Very good. In that case, uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up here and we'll pick it up um, with a similar set of irritation next time. And I feel like having a martini. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Put an olive in it. it with uh, an maybe, olive in it. I need to get some better olives. Maybe I'll run out. Or maybe two olives, because that's a that's a drink with balls. <laughs> that's true, and the and the twist was not um, available in the Mediterranean until basically the Roman period, right? Or yeah. Chevy Checker, whichever whichever you prefer. <laughs> he's uh, he's going to be a guest on the show next week, I think. So <laughs> we'll, we'll ask him directly. So bring your dancing shoes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. All right. Peace out. <laughs> well, that was informative and delicious. As always, we'd like to thank Eras Dessel for composing our theme music. And of course, we thank our sponsor, EJ Corvette Department Stores. Look for one near you. To get in touch, leave us a comment, send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.